to legendary jazz musician Duke Ellington, suffragist Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Herman Melville have in common. They're all buried in the same Bronx cemetery. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Where did we get that fun fact? From a man with encyclopedic knowledge of the Bronx. His name is Lloyd Altan. He's the Bronx borough historian. We asked him to swing by to share his list of top places to visit in the Bronx. Lloyd, thanks so much for coming in. Well, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. So what's number one on your list? Well, if you're thinking in terms of uh, historic uh, places... There are a number of historic houses in the Bronx that are in many ways related to the history of the country. Um, The oldest one, of course, is the Van Cortlandt House, which is in Van Cortlandt Park, which was built in 1748. Um, It was uh, during the American Revolution. Both George Washington and General Sir William Howe used it as its uh, as their headquarters. Uh, George Washington slept in the same place in, in, in that place three times, and I always say, of course, you realize that uh, you know George George Washington slept here. George Washington slept he pretty there. much slept everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's why he's the father of our country. <laughs> uh, the uh, in any event, the um, last time that he was there was in November of seventeen eighty three. And it was the very last act of the American Revolution. The British were evacuating New York City, and George Washington and the governor of the state of New York, George Clinton, um, uh, were there with their entourage and troops in order to cross, uh, of course, the King's Bridge into Manhattan to take possession of New York City. And, of course, once they took possession of New York City uh, and the British had left, that meant that uh, that was proof positive we won the American Revolution. Hmm. What about the Bartow Pell Mansion? Well, the Bartow Pell Mansion is, uh, uh, in, in many ways, the newest of the uh, of, of our uh, uh, historic houses. Uh, it was built by a New York City merchant, and it is very sumptuous, uh, especially when you walk inside. It's located inside Pelham Bay Park on Shore Road. Right across the street from the Pelham Bay Golf Course, but luckily, luckily enough, far enough to uh, prevent any stray uh, golf balls from hitting any of the windows. It's uh, built in the, uh, you know, in in a uh, in the style of federal style of the time, and it has beautiful grounds around it. And inside, the furniture furniture is sumptuous. As a matter of fact, Edgar Allan Poe himself, who was living in the Bronx at the time it was built, which was about 1840s. Uh, had written an essay on furniture, and his description of the furniture, which he considered to be the best way people could live, just mimics what you find in the Bartow Pell Mansion. Hmm, that's great. Yeah. You mentioned Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. You can also go to Poe Cottage here that's in right. the Bronx. Yes. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe uh, rented a cottage for the grand total of $100 a year. Um, $100 a, a year. year. Yes. Uh, Those were different times. <laughs> right. That's, uh, uh, that's located inside Poe Park on the corner of Grand Concourse and Kingsbridge Road. And uh, it, he lived there from 1846 until the day he died in 1849. It was his last home and the only home that he lived in that has survived anywhere in the country. It was in that home that his wife passed away. Uh, and it was there that he wrote uh, uh, The Cask of Amontillado, uh, which is uh, one of his great short stories, and also uh, The Bells. 
uh, and Annabel Lee, two great, uh, two of his great poems. He wrote other works too, but those are the ones that uh, most people remember today. Now, what's the rumor about the bells? Because I heard that he supposedly heard the bells at Fordham University, where mm-hmm. he was living, and that inspired that work. Uh, it's uh, you're not quite sure uh, because there is another uh, written account that he was down in Greenwich Village and he was hearing the bells of Grace Church. Uh, and the woman that he was, who had invited him uh, decided to alternate writing lines for the poem. However, what most people don't know is that uh, he wrote three versions of the poem, uh, each one longer than the last, and the one that we know is the longest version. So obviously he didn't write the entire poem down there. Now, he did frequent what is today Fordham University, then called St. John's College. Uh, the Jesuits provided him with, uh, uh, with intellectual stimulation, and he had, he had the use of the library, uh, which was, of course, very important to a person who was an intellectual. And it was only a short walk away. Um, so it is quite possible that hearing the bells of the church, the chapel at uh, St. John's College, now Fordham University, uh, inspired him to write some of the lines of, uh, of the bells. And indeed, Fordham University has preserved the bell, and it is uh, located in the attic of the brand new library building. So if anybody wants to see it, uh, they have to make arrangements to do so, but they can actually see the bell that perhaps had uh, uh, inspired Edgar Allan Poe to write some of his poetry. Now, is Poe Cottage in its original location, or was it moved to that location? Uh, no, it was moved to that location. It was originally located on uh, what is today uh, Kingsbridge Road, uh, just basically straight across the street from the southern part of Poe Park. Uh, there's an Art Deco building on the site. There are old photographs of the of the house in its original location uh, that show a fire hydrant and an early electric arc lamp. And if you go to the site today, you'll see a fire hydrant and a modern, uh, a modern light uh, uh, there today. So it sort of gives you a precise location uh, by triangle. Triangulating that, um, it was moved basically because uh, people, uh, developers, were developing the site and the apartment houses there that endangered the cottage itself. And a movement began to uh, move, to get the cottage moved off the site, across the street to what was originally an apple orchard, uh, which was taken over by the city of New York to become Poe Park. And the um, uh, the cottage was uh, re. Uh, moved to that location uh, early in the 20th century. Now, there's another historic home here in the Bronx. I don't recall the name that was also moved pretty much across the street. Which one is that? That's the second oldest house in the Bronx. Uh, That is the Valentine hyphen Varian house, uh, named after two of the prominent owners. It is now located on Bainbridge Avenue between uh, Van Cortlandt Avenue East and East 208th Street, not too far from Montefiore Hospital. Uh, it is a, field, a fieldstone farmhouse, and it was actually located uh, across the street on the corner of Van Cortlandt Avenue East and Bainbridge Avenue, facing what is today Van Cortlandt Avenue East. The reason why is Van Cortlandt Avenue East in the colonial period was the original Boston Post Road, mm. so it was a major road. Uh, I, it was built by Isaac Valentine, who was a blacksmith by profession, who uh, actually made his own nails, some of which you could find in the uh, in the floorboards. Oh, how cool! 
it, it is now operated by the Bronx County Historical Society as the Museum of Bronx History, so there are uh, changing, uh, permanent and changing exhibits about the history of the Bronx that are there. So you can visit it uh, more than once, and you can see some uh, some changing uh, things going on there. But the house itself uh, was the scene of six battles during the American Revolution, and it survived them all. Wow. And uh, in, in 1781, uh, the area around it was uh, a French army encampment, and the French were our allies at the time. And the Comte de Rochambeau, who was the head of all of the French armies in America, uh, slept overnight in that house. Uh, he dined on fricassee at that time. Hmm. After the American Revolution was over, Isaac Valentine, in common with many other people at the time, got into very terrible financial shape. Uh, and it was sold, the house was sold to a fellow by the name of Varian, Isaac Varian. And his family stayed there for three generations. Um, and when... Uh, uh, when the Varians gave up the farm because the area is becoming urbanized and the the values were going sky high, they couldn't pay the taxes on it. Um, it was sold at auction and was purchased by a fellow by the name of William F. Beller. And uh, he knew the historic importance of the house. He wanted to preserve it. So he rented it out at little or no rent to people who would just occupy it and keep it in good repair. But even then, by the time he got to the 1960s, it was uh, too much uh, to uh, to do that. The again, the values began to go up. So he donated the house to the historical society, but he sold the land underneath it to a developer who developed a brand new apartment house that's on the site, and he paid the cost of moving huh. the house across the street to where it is now. That said, what is the story with the theater on the Grand Concourse that's close to Fordham Road? Yeah, that's the Lowe's Paradise Theater. This uh, very interesting story. It was built in 1929 for $4 million. In 1929? In 1929. It opened up in October of 1929, two weeks before the crash. Uh, (laughs) Wow. Now, you talk about uh, movie palaces. This is beyond a movie palace. And I mean that seriously. No hyperbole. It was designed by John Eberson, who specialized in atmospheric theaters. And there are several of his theaters across the country. The idea of an atmospheric theater is that when you enter it, you leave your everyday humdrum existence and you enter into a world of fabulous wealth and beauty. Uh, You would walk into, first of all, it was 4,000 seats in the theater itself, but the experience started before you even got there. Because you would walk into a vestibule, which was uh, had a very high and low-hanging uh, 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 chandelier. Then you'd walk into the lobby, which was two stories high, uh, of course a red carpet. Um, and uh, you had, uh, um, unfortunately, it's since been broken, but there's a, uh, there was a fountain on one side that had water dripping into a huge basin in the shape of a conch shell and live goldfish. Wow. Uh, swam in there. Uh, there was uh, artwork on the walls and Mahalika jars uh, standing there. Uh, above, there are 1920s style um, uh, chandeliers uh, coming down, uh, which today is looks out of date. To your left, 
uh, there was an elevator with an elevator operator that could whisk you up to the balcony. But if you wanted to, straight ahead was the grand staircase, which went up at a right angle to the second story, which was like a balcony overlooking the floor below. Um, now, uh, if you are on that floor below, you would make a left turn, and in facing you were five double doors. Uh, and you opened these double doors, and that led to the room. And the first thing you do is you walk underneath the balcony. In the balcony, uh, you look up, it had a coffered ceiling. Uh, so, you know, with, uh, with all sorts of decorations on it. Uh, and, but as you were walking down, and the, the entire room revealed itself, on the walls, the walls are encrusted in statuary. There is a copy of uh, Michelangelo's uh, statue of Lorenzo de' Medici in the Medici tombs. Hmm. There was a, a copy of Antoine Houdon's bust of Benjamin Franklin. Um, there was a copy of uh, Donatello's statue of, uh, uh, of St. George. And above the proscenium arch, there was a copy of uh, uh, Michelangelo's uh, Night and Day, also from the Medici tombs. I mean, things like that. Yeah. Uh, now, as you looked up, you see the ceiling. The ceiling is p- painted like a night sky and f- pinpointed in the ceiling are uh, little, p- little pinpoint lights imitating stars. Hmm. And, and this, most people find it difficult to believe, floating Beneath that ceiling, from right to left, as you face the proscenium arch, were genuine, real clouds. Wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Really? Really. It was produced by a cloud machine <laughs> that was located above <laughs> oh, the ceiling. Oh, my goodness. Above the ceiling and below the roof. A person had to crawl in there to turn it on every wow. day. But if you've seen, uh, if you've witnessed, old enough to witness it, or, or, or seen films of the, uh, the uh, in Times Square, the old camel sign where a guy is puffing. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, and the yeah. smoke comes out. It's the same machine. But it was calibrated to make clouds instead of uh, instead of smoke rings. Huh. <laughs> okay. Unbelievable! Right, I, and put it there. Who watched the film? <laughs> <laughs> now, interestingly enough, the, uh, the the up until about 1935, they had both a film and a live show. And one of the women who were singing in the chorus uh, in the very first production of the uh, at the Paradise Theater was a young girl from Alabama and it was her very first job who was it (laughs) (laughs) well put it this way six years later she was up on the screen singing uh, the female opera parts in a night at the opera (laughs) Hmm. drop the name on me drop the name Lloyd (laughs) (laughs) Kitty Carlisle Kitty Carlisle. That's okay. right. The way I remember it is she married a Bronx boy, Moss Hart. Huh. <laughs> okay. So I knew her as Kitty Carlisle Hart. I met her many, many years later. How many times did you go to that theater yourself while you oh, were growing up? Countless times. The first movie I ever saw was uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And you saw the, it there. I saw it there. <laughs> yeah. Was the cost of a ticket any more because of the opulence of the theater? Uh no, not really. Uh, it was also volumes, 4,000 seats, mm-hmm. and it was filled practically every performance, and the performances were regularly turned over. 
It was only uh, later on with uh, with television and other modern ways of entertainment began to eat into the popularity of movies that uh, Lowe's Incorporated that owned the theater felt that they, uh, for, for the survival of the theater, they first had to twin it and the upper, uh, the balcony became a separate theater mm-hmm. and the orchestra became a separate theater. Huge cries of outrage all over the Bronx and how dare you touch this and they said well listen we got to do this because of the economics but we promise you that if any time you want to restore the theater uh, to a single room you can do so and nothing will be damaged and they were true to their word oh that's great that is great later on they triplexed it and then quadruplexed it Mm -hmm. and then finally they sold it all together and then they sold it to a guy who then announced that he was going to turn it into shops and again, outrage. Outcry, yeah. All over the Bronx. How dare you do that? And he said, well, well okay, I, I, if you I, just let me do some shops in there. I'll keep the, 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 the lobby intact. No, no, absolutely not. Well, there was a fellow who uh, grew up in the area who made a fortune in uh, Westchester County real estate, loved the theater, and he basically made a deal with the guy to restore the theater. And to uh, put on live shows because you couldn't have a 4,000-seat theater just for movies anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did that. He he tried to do that. But basically, the guy who owned it pulled the rug from under him wouldn't renew the lease. Mm. So several other owners uh, did it. And they they did it it for live shows. Again, it didn't work. It was sold to a a church uh, that now holds services there. And they're very proud of the place. But... The moment that it was restored, and by the way, it cost $12 million to restore it. Mm, wow. <laughs> All right. Um, the, uh, the moment it was restored, the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission uh, landmarked both the interior and the exterior. Oh, that's so great. No more remain. outcry. No more, no outcry. more screaming. It'll always remain, <laughs> and it still has the power to stun people by its opulence. I, if I take anybody in there, I always have to remember to take some sort of platter or plate with me just to catch their jaws when they drop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's amazing. Uh, when it first reopened uh, after the initial uh, uh, restoration, um, I was interviewed by a guy from uh, Channel 4 News, and uh, he said that um, he, was, he was from Nebraska. He had worked in Los Angeles. Uh, he's a movie theater buff, and he had seen several movie theaters across the country. And then he said, but I've never seen anything like this. Hmm. And it's true. There is nothing like it. And it's Lowe's Paradise Theater. <laughs> what would you say, Lloyd, is one of the more under-the-radar locations here in the Bronx? Well, there are a lot of places that are under the radar. I think that most people may have heard of this place but never visited because of what it is. That's Woodlawn Cemetery. Mm. And if you get there, they got you dead to rights. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the thing is... Lots of luminaries buried there, first of all. That's the point. Duke Ellington. Yeah, Duke Ellington is there, and right across the road from him is Miles Davis, and on the other side is Lionel Hampton. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, was an Illinois Jaquette and Max Roach, and you know a lot of the jazz men are buried there. Duke Ellington was the first, and they all wanted to be next to him. But they're not the only... They're not the only ones. I mean, Ida and Isidore Strauss, right? Yeah, Ida and Isidore Strauss, who uh, who were on the Titanic. 
But there are other people that you would never, uh, you know, expect to find. Uh, some of the um, major uh, captains of industry, some people that you've read about, some people that you've heard about. F.W. Woolworth is there. Hmm. Yeah, he has his five, own five and ten cent store, and, uh, uh, and right around the right around the corner is S.H. Cress, his uh, his competitor. His competitor. Right. Wow. You also have Jay Gould, one of the real nineteenth century robber barons. <laughs> Herman Melville. Really? That's right. Herman Moby Melville. Moby Dick. Who wrote Moby Dick? And interestingly enough, when H.L. Doctorow, who wrote Ragtime, when he he's from the Bronx, and when H.L. Doctorow passed away, he made certain he was his grave is near Herman Melville's. Now, a couple of other things. Uh, you may have heard of Irving Berlin. Yes, I've heard of Irving Berlin. Yeah, he's buried there, and so is George M. Cohan. Really? And the interesting thing is these are the only two people ever to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor for writing music. Wow. <laughs> right? Wow, wow, wow. You know, George M. Cohen for writing uh, Your Grand Old Flag and Over There and Irving Berlin for writing God Bless America. How great <laughs> okay? is that? You know, and, uh, and there's great architecture in that great, cemetery great as well. Great architecture. You have some of the greatest architects, 19th century architects, who uh, design mausoleums for these very wealthy people. Uh, who are there. And you could walk down these places where all these mausoleums are side by side by side by side, and you swear you're walking down some sort of representation of an opulent Park Avenue. <laughs> it's, uh, it's truly amazing. But, you know, it's a funny thing. It's just, sometimes it's the simple graves that do it. Um, I say the name James Montgomery Flagg, and people sort of say, Who? who? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he's there in a very small grave with a very small gravestone. But he is the guy who made the poster of Uncle Sam pointing his finger saying, I want you for the U.S. Army. Huh. <laughs> See that? I did not associate and the, the name. And, and interestingly enough, Uncle Sam's face in that poster is James Montgomery Flagg's face. Huh. <laughs> he used his own face for wow. that poster. Now, some people would not expect a person like this there, but uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who worked with Susan B. Anthony side by side in uh, trying to get votes for women. And the whole women's movement started with her. She's buried in Woodlawn Cemetery. Who in history, Lloyd, are you proudest to say is a fellow Bronxite? It's always difficult, but I think Gouverneur Morris. Uh, Gouverneur Morris was a member of the Morris family of Morrisania, uh, born in 1752 and died in 1816. He was an absolutely brilliant guy. He went to Columbia, what is today Columbia, then King's College, and he uh, graduated valedictorian. He uh, helped write the first New York State Constitution. He became a member of the Continental Congress, and after his term was over, he stayed in Philadelphia uh, working for Robert Morris, who was no relation. Robert Morris was the uh, richest man in the in the country at the time, and uh, he financed the American Revolution, and Gouverneur Morris helped, uh, you know, rake, rake in the money to do that. In 1787, he was chosen as a member of the Constitutional Co Convention. Hmm. And in, in he spoke more than any other delegates at the Constitutional Convention, much of the shape of the executive office, the president and the presidency, is his work. 
He wrote the preamble to the Constitution, we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union, etc., etc., etc. That's his. And as a matter of fact, when the work of the convention was basically over, he was assigned the task of taking all of these scattered uh, resolutions and putting together into some sort of literary form. So the Constitution of the United States is written in Gouverneur Morris's style. And therefore, he is referred to as the penman of the Constitution. Hmm. Then after that, he went over to Europe. He stayed in France. And when the new government started, he suddenly discovered that uh, George Washington, who he knew and was a friend of his, had named him the American ambassador to France when Thomas Jefferson had gone on to become Secretary of State. He was in France and the only ambassador from any country to stay in France during the Reign of Terror. Really? Right. And as a result, all of the aristocrats immediately ran to his home for sanctuary, you know, <laughs> diplomatic immunity. And Gouverneur Morris had a great wit. And he always uh, stated that uh, when he was there, he had to be careful getting out of bed in the morning, uh, walking around for fear that he would uh, step on a sleeping aristocrat. <laughs> <laughs> Now, after the uh, after he came back, uh, uh, he was uh, he, he was chosen to be a United States senator from New York, and uh, he also was chosen to be a member of the three man commission that uh, mapped the future streets of the city of New York, and that's the grid pattern that we have today in Manhattan. The last office that he had occupied was the uh, he was the first. Uh, chairman of the Erie Canal Commission. Hmm. And he died when in that office. Wow. What a life. Yeah. And he is buried in the Bronx. He's uh, the St. Anne's Episcopal Church on St. Anne's Avenue on 140th Street. And it is the oldest church structure in the Bronx, but not the oldest, uh, uh, not the oldest parish. To what, Lloyd, do you attribute your great interest in Bronx history to? <sighs> People always ask me that question. I keep on wondering. <laughs> the, uh, uh, well, first of all, I was born in the Bronx. I've lived in the Bronx my entire life. I was always interested in history, even as a toddler. I was asking uh, people who were older than I am what happened before I was born. <laughs> and um, so uh, when I went to college and graduate school, I majored in history. And Where did you go to college? Uh, well, I went to what was then called Hunter College in the Bronx, which is uh, today Lehman College. And, you know, I'm a, I was born at the tail end of the Great Depression and lived through the shortages of World War II. My parents were not wealthy, so in those days, the city colleges, as they were called then, were free if you met a certain level, and I was able to do that, and thank God. Um, then uh, for graduate work, I went to Columbia University, and for this I have to thank Nelson Rockefeller uh, because he started what was called the New York State Regents College Teaching Fellowship, and anybody who passed the statewide exam for that, and there were loads of people who did, uh, could then uh, get complete room and board at any college in the state. And uh, I figured, well, listen, Columbia University isn't that far away, and uh, so I, uh, I, I went there. And um, But after I had finished, I said, I know a lot about the history of this country and other countries, about the state of New York, city of New York, which is basically histories of the borough of Manhattan. But I know nothing about the history of the place where I was born, grew up, and still live, which was the Bronx. Yeah. Then I discovered there was a Bronx County Historical Society, and they had free public lectures. 
I figured the price was right, so I <laughs> so I went. Can't and, argue with free. <laughs> can't argue with free. You know, it's a, so I, I I went and being professionally trained as a historian, listening to several of these lectures, it suddenly hit me that the history of the Bronx is really the history of the nation in microcosm. So every important movement, any important event that has happened in the country that moved the country one way or another happened in the Bronx. And therefore, if we just focus on the Bronx, we could take a, look at, take a look at it as a laboratory. And if the national historians say, this happened because of this reason, I could look at the Bronx and say, is that true in the Bronx too? And if it isn't, why? And that intrigued me, and that got me going. And so here I am. I am now considered uh, a person who knows a lot about the history of the Bronx. They say, uh, you know, you're famous, you're famous. I say, well, listen, uh, mention my name in Sheboygan, and they'll say who? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, know I, you have to be, uh, you know, very clear. And I you have mean, a few books out, right? Oh, a few, yeah. If, uh uh, I've written 13. That's uh, more than a few. And uh, I have one right now that's uh, that's at the publisher, and I have a few more in the pipeline, yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, because I'm always finding new stuff. Lloyd, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Lloyd Altan is the Bronx Borough Historian. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Caroline Rotante. I'm George Boldarki. Thank you for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.